Good morning. Um, I'm Jordan. Really grateful to be with you here on this Thanksgiving uh, weekend. Um, and fun to see some of the parents, maybe, with uh, visiting us as well. Um, if your son or daughter is a student, very, very happy to be here. <clears throat> we are in a series um, called Lament and Joy. I was reminded of the relevance of this series this week as I was even preparing this. Um, a couple family members connected with our pastoral team, um, uh, Norton, our French pastor, his, his mother-in-law passed away, and then uh, Dustin at Reach Montreal, a church revitalization we're connected with, his mother-in-law passed away. Um, and so both of these together reminded me of how truly relevant it is that we know how to lament and to grieve well. It's a reality that we all face, sin and sorrow. If you know them, of course, you can be praying for them. I'm actually preaching here this morning because um, Brian Stegner, one of our other pastors, is preaching uh, for Dustin at Reach so they can attend the funeral. Um, but here we are, seeing the relevance of this series, Lament and Joy. And today is actually the day in our series in which we were turning the page from the lament part of the series to the joy part of the series. And so you will have noticed that Dwight read our congregational reading was from the Gospel of John, not from Lamentations. This, we're making that uh, turn. And yet this leaves us with a question. For those of us who are uh, like Dustin and Norton's family, for those of us who are going through pain and grief and suffering, what are we to do with this topic of joy? Or put it another way, the Apostle Paul writes to, to the Christian church, and he says to them to rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. How are we to rejoice evermore and lament? How is that even possible? <laughs> Does it mean we like happy, clappy, no tears, you know? No. <laughs> no, I want to say that's not the case, actually. The, this morning, I'm hoping to show you that the kind of joy that I'm talking about is not a sort of surface joy like that, a happy clappy and ignore the tears. The kind of joy I'm talking about is a real joy, a deep joy that can only be found in God. Okay, this is the kind of joy that doesn't require you to be happy clappy, although it might express itself that way. This is the kind of joy that is not escapist and dismissive of the real pain and suffering that you will inevitably face in your life. And this is the kind of joy that you can have despite your pain, okay? This is the real joy of God, the deep joy of God that we can have in him. It's the sort of joy that forms an undercurrent, an undercurrent that will sustain you through the, the darkest and the driest and the most difficult deserts of your life. He will he will be an undercurrent of joy for you. That's who God is, and that's the kind of deep joy that he offers. So let's look at that joy together. In John chapter 16, uh, in verse 16, that's where we are. I'd invite you to turn to that, follow along. I'll be going, you know, sort of verse by verse. Um, and I'm just going to pray that the Spirit illuminates this text for us. Spirit, would you, would you do that? Would you make this, your word, uh, be real to us, be real to our souls? Um, would you meet us in the place of, of struggle with sin? Would you meet us in the place of sorrow and lament and show us that our mourning can be turned into to gladness in you? 
Spirit, we need you. I need you. Amen. So this is John chapter 16 and verse 16. We're coming into a private conversation that Jesus is having with his, his followers, his disciples. And Jesus says this, a little, verse 16, A little while you will see me no longer, and a little while you, you will see me. And so some of the disciples said to one another, What is this he says, a little while you will not see me, a little while you will see me because I'm going to the Father? And so they're saying, like, what does he mean by a little while? We, we don't know what he's talking about. They're scratching their heads. They're confused. It's a very, like, cryptic statement, Jesus. What do you mean a little while you will and a little while you won't? How long is a little while? Is this a big little while, a little, little while? What are you talking about? Verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So they said what they wanted to ask him. So they, uh, sorry, verse, uh, wrong verse. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? Hmm. Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their heart. And he knows our thoughts in our hearts as well. Is this what you were asking yourself? What I meant by saying, a little while you will see me and a little while you will, uh, you will not see me. A little while you will see me truly, truly. In other words, like, Get this, fix this firmly into your head. Truly, truly, this is reality. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And so we see here that Jesus, this phrase, he, he starts in a sense by acknowledging where we're at. He starts by starting where we started this morning, right? In a place of what are we to do with our grief and what are we to do with our sorrow? And he starts by acknowledging, you know what? You will weep and lament. But then he says this, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now, what does he mean by that? He gives an illustration, and it's in verse 21. Let me read it. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So I have a question for the moms in this room. Is this really the case? Yeah, how many of you remember the pain of labor once you held your child in your arms? I'm going to take it from the floor. Can we have some response on this? I see the moms are looking at each other. <laughs> Who's going to say it? <laughs> Is that true? Is this the case? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I asked my wife about it, okay, because I didn't want to put you on the spot too hard, okay? And she confirmed this to me, okay? She actually looks back on her labor as a positive experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, she remembers the good bits, okay, like holding the baby for the first time. And she says even though she knew it was painful, she just cannot recall it in the same way. It's like, oh, man, oh, man. I didn't experience the pain. I saw the pain. But Jesus basically says that this is illustrative to us. This is illustrative to us. That like a woman giving birth, he says in verse 22, so also you will have sorrow now. But I will see you again in your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. No one. My friends, this statement of, of Jesus is so rich. It is so key for us. It's so weighty. I'm going to spend much of our time just unpacking this, Okay. You will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one can take that joy from you. He's saying, essentially, that in the kingdom of God, we find that, that labor pains always precede birth joy. 
Labor pains always precede birth joy. First there are those labor pains. First you will weep and lament. You will sorrow now, like Jesus says. You will sorrow now. In other words, not health, not wealth, sorrow. The prophets of prosperity then are are wrong, okay? They're wrong. Verse 33 of this chapter says, Jesus says, in the world you will have what? Trouble or tribulation, yes, but take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. He's saying some of the same things there as he is here. You will have sorrow now. So if you get anything from this series that we're in, Lament and Joy, it's that it's not wrong to grieve. It's not a sin to sorrow. In fact, it's important that we learn to grieve and lament well, that we learn to deal and, and, and go through our loss well, loss like we started with, but all sorts of losses that we'll face in this life. We saw a few weeks ago that when going through loss, we need to pay attention to our feelings. We need to pay attention to our bodies, not just repress and ignore. No, no, sit in that and understand what's happening. And then take it, don't just stay there, but take it and express all of that unprocessed, raw, level five emotion we saw. Express it to God in all of its theological confusion. And you know what? He delights, he wants to meet you there. He will meet you there. I know that to be the case. Doesn't leave you in those places. How, do you, how, do I, how can I say with such confidence that God will meet you there? Well, Lamentations was the evidence of that, right? What's Lamentation? It's all of that, that raw, unprocessed emotion, all that suffering and grief and lament and all that theological confusion being brought to God, our human words of pain being brought to God, and you know what he does with it? He makes it part of his word to us. God will meet you in the place of your grief and your sorrow. You can know that. He will. In fact, he delights to. It's a place in which you're vulnerable and humble. It's a place he meets you. And so let's lament and let's do it well, okay? And not expect life as a disciple of Jesus to be all health and wealth, you know, rainbows and butterflies. He just didn't promise that. That's not what he promised him now. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about those things. He certainly does. In fact, they are rightfully his. The health and the wealth of the world is rightfully his and will come one day. But he says, in this time, you will sorrow now. You will face tribulation. And so let's not, you know, go around expecting that now. Because that can set us up for disappointment, right? You will have sorrow now. And Jesus actually adds this little contrast. He says, And yet the world will rejoice. We'll have sorrow, but the world will rejoice. What's that all about? The context here, and this is sort of a bit of a a segue, but the context, of course, is Jesus' teaching, his life has been upsetting the status quo. The whole uh, Jewish religious system, Jesus is coming along, he's calling them back to God, back to the Torah, and actually showing he's living it in himself, he's embodying it. That's shaking up the system. The Roman system, the empire is afraid that this might be a a turnover of the system, and so the Jewish and the Roman powers, the best thing they can do to Jesus is to do away with him, to get rid of him. Then it'll be better, right? Then they will rejoice. This is what it means for the world to rejoice, to do away with Jesus. But of course, on the other hand, for the disciples, at the same time, the thought of Jesus leaving, the thought of Jesus going away or going to death, which they were wrestling with in this text, right? It it was grief-inducing. It was earth-shattering, 
right? They'd given up their entire lives, their entire livelihoods, tax collectors to fishermen, to follow this carpenter from Nazareth, seeing his teachings and his deliverance, submitting to his way of life, and now he's preparing their hearts to say, I'm going to go away. That is a cause for great sorrow, and yet the world will rejoice at the same time. And so Jesus is preparing their hearts for this. Verse 22, you will sorrow now. And then he goes on to say this next part of the, the phrase in that the sentence of verse 22, you will sorrow now, but then he says, I will see you again, and your hearts rejoice. See, what they can't understand now will become clear through his death and resurrection. He's going to go away a little while, and then he'll come back in a little while. And then they're going to remember what we're saying here, that in the kingdom of God, the, the, the labor pain always precedes the birth joy, right? Jesus' death on the cross is just that. Jesus' death on the cross is not the end of the story. Jesus' death on the cross is not, okay? Our sin and our suffering and the evil that we experience in this life, you and I, that is not the end of the story. I'll tell you what is the end of the story. It's not Jesus' death on the cross, but his victorious work over all of that stuff. That's the end of the story. And that prepares the way, like that labor pain, that prepares the way for the birth joy of the resurrection morning. Okay, that's what Jesus has accomplished for us at the cross. That is powerful, and that is meaningful, and that is a source of sustaining, transcendent joy in our lives. As an illustration, you might remember the woman at the well, right? Jesus interacts with this lady. She's been cycling through different men, and there's a tragedy in her heart. She's looking for satisfaction. She's looking for joy, and Jesus comes to her and says, I will give you living water that you will never thirst again. In fact, it will well up within you to eternal life, well up within you. And then he says, the time is coming and is now here. And this is what Jesus' resurrection shows and demonstrates and guarantees and puts the stamp on, that joy has come and it's come in the person of Jesus. And so for this woman, when she encounters Jesus, when she gives her life over to him in a sense, right, her life is captured by Jesus and his joy that changes her. It changes her in a deep way. You remember she says, come see a man who's told me everything I've ever did. She's without shame. Why? Because she's been given this relational soil with Jesus of joy. And so now in the joy of Jesus' presence, she's secure. She doesn't have shame anymore. She can say, come see a man who's, you know, who knows everything I've ever done. Because she's been freed from herself. She's been freed from us and reorder our loves in ourselves such that we find lasting joy in him forever. <laughs> and so this makes sense of Jesus' statement. A little while you will not see me. A little while you will see me again. It had to do with his death and resurrection. But there's another layer to this, right? And it's the layer that now that Jesus has been raised to life again, he's also ascended to the Father. And so we live in this time in which we sorrow, in a sense, Jesus' absence, and we look forward to the joy of his coming. Is coming again. So we live, in a sense, between these two joys. It's in this space that you and I live, right? The resurrection and ascension of Jesus behind us and the joy of his coming ahead of us. And we're like, I want that. <laughs> I want it now. I want that time. And Jesus, he says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But it says, sin and sorrow and sickness will be no more. When everything, he will come and everything that's wrong will be made right. I want him to come the li- to, to judge the living and the dead. That's what I want. When is it going to come? I want it now. 
right? I want the joy of Jesus' coming. And you know what? He says what he says in this text. A little while. We're like, ah. He says, it's a little while. I will come again. And even though we don't know when that is, we can be sure that it will happen. In the same sense that a little while he will come again. He did it the first time. He will do it again the second time. And so in this space we live, in this space between the resurrection of Jesus behind us, the joy of Jesus coming ahead of us. But this like this mixed reality, right? It's this mixed reality where because of the resurrection and his ascension, the Holy Spirit can come into us and be the sustaining presence of deep joy. And yet, at the same time, until Jesus comes and brings joy in its full completion to our you know, our planet and humanity and so on, we still suffer. We still fight sin, right? We're still opposed in the message of Jesus. The gospel is still against the world that we live in, the empire of our day, if you would have it. And, you know, actually like Jesus, who was upsetting the status quo, so we too, his followers, are called to upset the status quo as we share the message of Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, we're freed by his joy. We're freed from ourselves, freed from our own proclivities, and freed to love and serve him with all of our lives, even if that means opposition and possibly death. And so we will sorrow now, but we will see him again. I love this. You will have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Here's something else that's in there. Guys, seeing Jesus and his presence will do something to your pain. It will. Just like pain and suffering, thank you. Just like pain and suffering, are, they're not good things in and of themselves, but seeing Jesus face to face is so much like that mom who sees the baby and holds it for the first time. You just can't recall the pain like it was. <laughs> Jesus doesn't remove our sorrow, but he gives us the ability to endure it in the now. He doesn't remove it, but he gives us the ability to endure it. In fact, his joy, when we encounter it in that way, it helps us order and stabilize our emotions. Well, how does his joy do that? How does his joy help us order and stabilize our emotions? Well, it's because of what joy is, right? Joy is, is not based on your, your happiness and your circumstances. Joy is not based on your pleasure. Joy is based on what? It's based on, on relationships, Joy is relational. It's relationally communicated. I've, um, just to explore that for a second, I've been reading this book called The Other Half of Church by a guy named uh, Jim Wilder. And he calls himself, he's a neuroscientist and a theologian. He calls himself a neurotheologian. <laughs> yeah, whatever, right? <laughs> That's how I think about that kind of thing. But anyway, he has this really interesting point. He does, he does make some really great points. He makes this connection between the face and the presence of God and joy, okay? Face the presence and joy. He says a lot of times, he brings out how in our modern translations of scripture, we'll take this expression, the light of your face, and we'll translate it as just presence, okay? So like Psalm 89, 15, here's an example. Blessed are those who walk in your presence, which can actually be read, blessed are those who walk in the light of your face. Or Psalm 16, 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. It's quite literally, in the light of your face is fullness of joy. And so he's making this connection between face and presence and joy. And what he actually points out is that these translations can cause us to forget the very like bodily relational aspect that joy is, that joy is relational, and it's primarily communicated through uh, the face. 
And so this is like actually what joy is. It's when you walk into a room and like the whole room lights up. You know that feeling you feel inside? That's what joy is. That's what he says joy is. And so he's connecting these ideas between the presence of God and actually the face, the light of your face and, and joy. And I was thinking about this and I realized, you know, when I put my kids to bed at night, this is a lot of what's happening. When I put my kids to bed at night, I'll say over them, I've been doing this for more than a year. I say Numbers 6, 24 to 26, the Levitical blessing. Some of you might, I'll read it, I'll, I'll say it to you. Okay, so I'll come in, I'll come in, you know, it's dark, and I'm like, Hazel, that's my daughter, I'm like, like, look, okay, and you know, <laughs> you know, she looks at me, and I'm like, okay, through the dark, Okay, she looks at me, and she's like, maybe can't quite see me because it's dark, but I'm smiling, and I say this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord have mercy on you. Lift up his face towards you and give you peace. And then I always add, and a good night's sleep, right? (laughs) And I do that, and I've come to realize, I believe that's a lot of what God does to us, that he comes to us in the dark, and we can't see him, and he says, look into my face. He says his, his face lights up, and we might not be able to see it, but his face lights up with joy over us. And he says, I am so glad to be with you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. That's what that means. That's what that means. His face lights up when he sees you. The Lord God wants to be with you. You believe that? You believe that like I want to be with my child, Hazel? He wants to be with you. And yet our hearts resist that. We're like, no, no, that's not the case. That's sort of like, meh. I don't know, this is like shallow or something. I don't, I don't know. We say, or it's, it's theologically like doesn't fit. It's cheesy. I don't know. God doesn't want to be with me. And I'm like, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Stop looking away from the other faces that are distracting you and look towards him, okay? He will light up. He lights up when we look to him and look away from whatever else is distracting us. He wants our hearts, guys, when we look into his eyes, when we look into his face, the Lord make his face shine upon you. He wants us to get lost in the experience of his joy, in wonder, and love, in praise. That's what he wants for us. That's what his joy is able to do for us. Joy is relationally experienced. It's experienced, in a sense, in our bodies, like our whole bodies. When we encounter the living God, we feel it. We know it. It changes us. This is why joy is relational. And this is why it also, to get us back on track, this is why joy can help us endure sorrow. This is why we can have joy despite the sorrow that we face. Because joy is relational. <clears throat> As an example, I, I think about um, my own mother's funeral. Okay, It's been more than 12 years. And as I was preparing this, I thought back. I was like, ah, oh, what was it that I was feeling at that time? You know, And I can still... I can still walk away and being and remember being I remember walking away and being so profoundly sad. It was like the whole world had been knocked out of orbit and sort of like come in like this. And yet at the same time, there was something in it that was making all the difference in me. And I was like, what is that? And you know what it is, this, this helped make sense of it for me, is that there was people there, my family, our community, that were glad to be there with me. They were glad to come and enter into the suffering along with me. And most importantly of all, I believe God wanted to enter into the suffering with me. That he was glad to be with me. And that actually changed the way. I now understand what I was experiencing then. That yeah, well the world seemed to like 
go like this. At the same time, what I experienced was oddly, I felt rooted. I felt cared for. I felt a sort of deep sense of peace and, and joy. That's what I experienced. This is this odd sort of thing, but this has made sense of it for me. And this might not be your experience, but this is how, you know, I've made sense of, of mine. And you can see how it, like, it wasn't my circumstances, right? It wasn't, mom had just died. It wasn't the circumstances that had happened to me. It was, it was the state of our beings in relation to each other, right? Me within a community that was glad to be with me. But me, ultimately, God being with me. God glad to be with me. God glad to enter into my suffering with me. And that's what made the sorrow bearable. The joy was present in the sorrow. This is how we can have joy in sorrow. And this can't be more true than when it comes to your relationship with God. He's a joy inside that cannot be taken away. Like it says in verse 22, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. And now we're at this last phrase. And no one can take your joy from you. No one can take your joy from you. Ask yourself this question. Can your joy be taken away? Does the joy that you depend on, can it be taken away? Does it rise and fall with your success and failure? Can it be crushed? Can it die? Can it be burnt up? What are the joys that are most appealing to you? What are the shallow joys that are most appealing to you? When your joy is weak, what joys are the most appealing to you? See, in our minds, we tend to like jump to like things like drugs and alcohol or, I don't know, porn, these kinds of things. Those are shallow joys for sure. But there are other things that are less obvious to us. Other things that, if they become ultimate things, can become shallow joys that steal our true joy, like a vacation or your phone. Okay, these kinds of things we go to sometimes to find joy. What about overspending or overeating? Right, all of these sorts of places we go to find joy, my friends, they cannot sustain. They will not sustain. In fact, you're going to need more and more of them, and you will get less and less joy. And in the end, they'll be taken away. And this is why you need a transcendent source of joy, a source of joy that can never be taken away, a source of joy that can never run dry, a source of joy that doesn't depend on your success and failure, a source of joy that will only grow and grow and grow with time. And that's the sort of joy that you can have in God. It's a deep joy, a true joy that will never let you go. That's the joy you can have in him. He's a joy that doesn't depend on our success and failure. Why is that? Well, because it's not based on you. It's based on Jesus. And Jesus is the joy of God. God is joy in and of himself. And he looks on his son. And of his son, he says, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And when you know him, he can say that over you. He is well pleased with you. Your joy does not de depend on your success and failure. His joy is independent of that. His joy will also never run dry or grow old. G.K. Chesterton has this awesome quote. He compares how kids, right, they say, do it again, do it again, right? And this insatiable appet insatiable appetite for joy. My kids, yesterday, Jackson's like throwing out, he's like, he can't speak, but you know he wants me to do it and do it again, you know, and it's just exhausting. Okay, this happens all the time. He wears me right out, okay? But God is not like that. 
the joy of God does not grow sinfully weak, old, and tired. God's joy is always new. He always says to the sun sun every morning, do it again, do it again. Or to each flower he creates, do it again, do it again. He doesn't tire. His joy does not grow old like ours. So God's joy does not grow old. It stays young forever. It doesn't depend on success and failure. And it grows and it grows this is something that surprised me. I've been a Christian for a long time. Um, <laughs> you know, the long, I've, some of you, I've shared this before, but I used to think of myself as a realist. You know, I was always able to see the sort of downside of the situation. Bring the cloud back into the sunny day. And my, f- my family growing up, I mean, this is a long-standing thing. They would talk about me as, oh, Jordan, he's just sort of like, he's an Eeyore about life. You know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Sort of like, well, you know, it's just how it is. And uh, it, was finally, it was finally my wife that confronted me a few years ago. And she's like, well, Jordan, you, you, you call yourself a realist. You're actually a cynic. And I was like, oh. She's like, you are not living in the joy that Jesus won for you at the cross. Oh. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> and I had to repent. I had to turn to Jesus and ask for help to restore my joy, re- restoring me the joy, essentially, of my salvation. And he, he can do that. The joy won for you at the cross is available to you in the Holy Spirit. It's all available to you in the Holy Spirit. He doesn't hold it back. And I'm still on a journey, right? That was a few years ago, and there's a landmark moment in realizing that I was living for less than the joy that Jesus had for me. And that wasn't the case. That wasn't the way that I was to be living. That's not what he died for. And so how do, I, how do you like sort of live that out? How do you put that into practice? Because you can't just be like, well, I'm going to be a joyful person now. And then, you know, the next day, you know, the clouds come or whatever. It's, it's, it doesn't work that way, does it? So it's acknowledging, it was acknowledging my situation before God, asking for his help, and then putting into practice it's like what we call spiritual disciplines. God isn't opposed to our, our, our effort. He's opposed to our earning. And so what sort of things were there to be celebrating in my life? Lots of things. There's, you know, there's birthdays, there's people, there's, there's holidays, you know, there's, what, you know, all these sorts of good gifts that God has given us that need to be acknowledged, need to be celebrated, not just to sort of mow through my Sabbath as if it wasn't there, but actually take the time to stop and enjoy God's gifts to me. And so it, it looked like practically making sure we didn't miss things like date night, you know, celebrating holidays, making the birthdays a little bit more, popping a cork here and there. And you know what I found? Unlike the sort of pseudo joys or shallow joys, displaced joys, if you'd have it, that require more and more for you to be like less and less joyful. And this really was the case, right? Because I was, um, you know, as you mature and as you take on more responsibilities in life, they sort of like constrain you. And then you have like, yeah, with the three M's, marriage and mortgage and a MasterCard and whatever. You know what I'm talking about? These things constrain you. And it's, it was like always just living for that next thing when like I wouldn't have those things. But basically I'll have them for like the longest time, right? Well, I want my wife. But you know what I mean? Like the mortgage and the MasterCard. It's like all of those. I was taking like more and more to have less and less joy. But the true joy of heaven, unlike those shallow joys, it takes less and less the smaller and the simpler things of life become more and more meaningful and beautiful and joy-giving to you. I was biking last night, and I saw this, like, fiery red leaf, and I was like, awesome. And I actually, like, felt joy in my body, and that would not have been the case a few years ago. God is able to restore joy 
to us, okay? He's a joy that grows and grows. He's a joy that never runs dry. He's a joy that doesn't depend on success and failure. And this is the kind of deep joy that we can find in God, okay? And so it doesn't matter what sort of shallow joys you've in, indulged in or how long you've indulged in them, how tight you feel that grip is in them. What matters is that you find true joy, that you find deep joy in God. And it has this sort of displacing effect, right? That when you encounter God, everything else changes in your life. It's true. This is why, this is why the scripture says that the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? When you are living in the joy of the Lord, then when you are experiencing what he's experienced for you at the cross, this has a displacing power such that you are strong to resist despair in suffering and you are strong to resist the temptation to sin. And when you don't walk in the joy in the Lord, when you are not living in the fullness of what the Spirit has for you, you are weak, right? The converse is also true. And so this is why it's so important that we run back to Jesus. We go back to Jesus again and again to receive his joy, to experience his joy. Verse, the end of verse 24 says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full, okay? I think we've forgotten this as the church. We almost made like being like flat-faced and melancholy and kind of boring as like a spiritual discipline or something like this. Okay. Christians are not known generally to be joyful people. I think that's just a fact. Okay. And we need to acknowledge that, say it's a problem, and then ask, why are we not the most joyful people in the world? <laughs> why not? We have the joy of the resurrection behind us, the joy of heaven before us. What is that? Yes, we will have sorrow now, but we can have joy in our sorrow. Yes, that changes everything. Everything. It doesn't depend on your success and failure. My goodness, we have reason to be joyful. It's a joy that will never run out. We can find enjoyment in God. And that will transform your Christian life. And you can have that in the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants for you. It's all available to you now. And yet, what, are those, what about those of us who are in sorrow right now? Let me just say this. First Peter talks about us having not seen him, yet having not seen him, we love him. It says, with a joy inexpressible. Guys, this is possible. Even yet, even when Jesus is absent, it is possible to have a joy inexpressible. And so let's do like it says in Hebrews, to fix our eyes on Jesus and run with patience the race that he set before us. And does that mean we'll endure hardship? Does that mean we'll endure death and tribulation and difficult circumstances and eventually suffer and die? Yes, but let me tell you what is true. What is true is that no one can take the joy from you that is offered to you by Jesus. No one. It's unstoppable. It's an undercurrent that cannot be removed. It will never run dry. You can endure. That is, that is possible in the spirit. That is possible when you know the true joy of heaven. And so let's run with our gaze fixed on Jesus. Let's not turn away. Let's not be, you know, Peter, he turns away. He gets distracted. Doubt, fear, all of these things dismay. And you know what happens? As soon as Jesus cries, Lord, save me, it says immediately Jesus reached out the hand. And so if that's the case for you this morning, if you feel like you have been distracted, if you feel like you've been fallen into despair, if you feel like you've fallen into doubt and lost sight of the joy available for you that was won for you at the cross of Jesus, I say, turn back to him. Look back into his face. He is overjoyed when you turn and you look to him and find him as the true joy of your heart. And that will fill you with joy unstoppable. That's what's on offer to you.
That's the kind of joy he offers. We can have joy in our sorrow and in our lament. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the joy of our souls. You are the joy bringer. You've come and you've changed everything. Jesus, help us to step into this. Help us to be a joyful people, not shallow and happy clappy, but have the true joy, the deep joy of God rooted in our hearts, and that changes everything. Lord, I pray for anybody here who's, who's going through sorrow and hardship and suffering. Would you meet them in that place? Would they see you as looking on them, face lighting up, full of joy? This is who you are to us. Spirit, come. We need you. And I pray for anybody here, Lord, who is distracted, who's, who's not looking at you, who's going after shallow joys, Jesus, that you would recapture their heart by your powerful presence and by your hand. Turn them back to you that they would know your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to invite us to come into a time of response. Um, and we respond in a few different ways. Um, we respond uh, through giving. Giving is one of the ways with which we respond to everything Jesus has given uh, to us. Um, and it's out of the overflow that we were talking about of joy that we give back, knowing that our resources are a gift from God too. So you can give online or there's a box at the back there. Um, we also give through uh, song. Um, and we'll be um, singing in a moment. Um, but we're going to be going through a time of communion, which I will lead now. Um, Evan, if you, I need one of those packs too. If you, if you forgot to take a pack when you came in, these are COVID-friendly communion packs. Um, you can grab one of them now. <coughs> and this is a moment in which um, Jesus invites us to himself. He invites us to his table and it's this, at this table that we meet him. It's at this table he puts before us bread and wine. And he says of it a few things, and I'll explain them to you now. On the top, there's a wafer. And this wafer is symbolic. It sim symbolizes the life of Jesus, in fact, his body, his physical body, that he did not stay disconnected to our reality. He did not stay apart, ethereal, spiritual, floating around, sort of ghost-like being. That's not the case at all. That's not who God is. That God came down, and he entered in and took on flesh and bone, and because of that, he suffered with you and with me and experienced you and me, and experienced everything that we experience, all of the sorrow that we face, all of the pain that we face, Jesus faced that too in his body. And we hold this in our hands as a physical reminder of that reality, that Jesus came down and he took on flesh like you and me. And so take that together with me now. And similarly, he puts before us at his table a cup. And this is grape juice. It's symbolic. It reminds us of his lifeblood that was poured out for us. And he says to us, do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget. Don't forget how I have made possible the true joy of heaven in your heart. And so as we remember this, it can 
let it fill your heart with joy. At once a remembrance that is joy-giving because he has given his lifeblood for you. Take and eat with remembrance in your heart. Thank you, Father, that you have given your life for us in the flesh. You didn't stay apart. And you invite us to yourself and that this is a moment in which we can encounter you. And I pray that you would encounter us, that our joy would be made complete, that you would satisfy our souls in yourself. Help us to respond um, as we sing in praise before you. Move in us, Spirit. Would we see you this morning as good? In Jesus' name, amen.